Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being with us. Let me just pin my video. There we go. Thank you so much for being with us this morning for our study of Parsha. This is a Yom HaShoah edition of our Parsha Perspectives. We'll try to specifically draw messages for today as we reflect on what is the greatest loss, the greatest devastation in our history, the greatest calamity of humankind, and try to draw some lessons, some messages particular to today from our Parsha, offering Parsha perspective. We have the honor of a double Parsha, Tazria and Mitzorah. I want to thank our generous sponsors for this year, Dr. Uh, Becky and Avi Katz, and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Li'iloi Nishmas David ben Menachem Manish. Thank you to the Katzes for their generosity, their leadership around the world, and their friendship, and uh, helping us sponsor our Parsha. Parsha's Tazria begins on page 608 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash and begins with the story of a woman who gives birth. God spoke to Moshe saying, If a woman conceives and she gives birth to a baby boy, then she has a certain impurity she needs to purify herself from. Fascinatingly, it says, If a woman conceives, and there's a modern day halachic debate, does conception need to happen naturally in order for the laws that the Torah now delineates to be true? Namely, that if the eighth day after birth falls on Shabbos, bris milah, the bris supersedes the laws of Shabbos, is that only true if she not only delivers naturally? We know Yotze Dofen, a woman who has a C-section, a baby born through cesarean section, does not supersede Shabbos, that bris would be delayed till the following day. The question is if a baby is conceived, not naturally, namely through IVF or using one of the brilliant, blessed uh, technologies we have today, would the bris supersede Shabbos or would the bris be delayed? Postkim debate the word kisazria, to conceive, is it only through a natural conception as well? On the eighth day, the bris takes place, and there are consequences, 33 days, and so on and so forth, 7 days, 14, 33, 66, depending on the birth of a male, depending on the birth of a female. Very, very interesting. Aristotle actually, also philosophically, Lahavdil, uses these exact numbers, 4 and uh, 17, 7 and 14, 33 and 66, and so on. But I want to draw your attention to Rashi. Rashi says here, noting... If a woman conceives and gives birth, Just like when it comes to the story of creation, first we have the creation of the animal kingdom, the animal world. We have domesticated and non-domesticated, and we have fowl. And only then, on the sixth day of creation, do we have the creation of man. So too now, we follow the same chronology, the same order as creation itself. What is Rav Simlai talking about? What is Rashi talking about? They're answering a question that bothered them, maybe not you, which is, what is the smichas parshis? What is the connection, the juxtaposition of the end of last week's parsha with the beginning of this week's? At the end of last week, we read about the laws of kashrus, what are the criteria that determine whether an animal is a candidate to be consumed, whether it's kosher or non-kosher? Different criteria for animals, birds, and fish. So the Torah wonders, what is the connection between the animals of last week's Parsha and then the beginning of this week's Parsha, the birth of a human being? And that's what Rav Simlai is teaching. The same way in the order of creation, first God created the animals, and then God created man, so too we see the laws of the animals, and now we come to, in our parsha, the laws of man. Kishem, just like Yitzirah, so shall Adam, the creation of man, followed animal, so too the Torah, the laws of man, follow animal. Rav Yeruchim Levavitz, the Mashkiach of the Mere Wonders, Das Torah. What does it mean? Kishem. What does it mean? The Torah of man follows the Torah of animals. What is the Torah of man? So he says the following. The Torah, if you look in the Gemara Sanhedrin, Daflam and Ches, Chazal several times tells reasons. Why was man created last? Why is man the pinnacle of creation? 
What does it mean our Torah is last? And he says the following, This is not just symbolic. It's not just a sign. There is a foundational axiomatic principle we are deriving and learning from here. You see, the Zohar says, God did not create a world randomly. He didn't just undertake this project and he said, you know, let's make something called man, let's make animals, let's make uh, heaven and earth, let's make food, let's make time. It was all intentional, it was all strategic. God looked into his Torah and he created the world meaning. First he knew what were the values he wanted to inculcate. What were the ideals he wanted to cultivate? within us. And then he created a world corresponding with those values and ideals. He wanted us to be disciplined. He created something called food and sexuality. He wanted us to have a time awareness. He wanted us to be able to understand different relationships, parent-child, employer-employee, master-servant, husband-wife. All of these are paradigms and ways in which we create and connect to Hashem. His stacko borai, so he looked into his Torah. So it's not that God created a world and then he said, hmm, I need regulations. I need governing principles. I need rules in order to operate in this world. So he didn't create the world and then make the instruction manual. He made the instruction manual, the Torah, his stacko boraisa. He looked into that instruction manual called the Torah, ubora alma, and then he created a world. So Torah and creation there's a synergy. They were done simultaneously. This is not just a theoretical idea. It is in practice. How do you know that, says Rav Yerucham? Because consider for a moment. That's what Chazal say. Taryag mitzvos namru misinai. The 613 commandments that we were given at Har Sinai, we have 248 positive, and we have 365 negative, and Chazal tell us it corresponds with the anatomy of the human body. The 248 positive commandments are Kenegid Ramach Eivarim Sheba Adam. The 248 organs, limbs, Gemar Makos, Chav Gimel. The 365 negative prohibitions correspond with Shesagidim. The 365 arteries, sinews, veins within a person. Forget anatomically, medically right now, how you count them and calculate them and does it actually, is it accurate? But what Chazal want to communicate to us is that the Torah is not simply a response to the world that was created. The world is a response to the Torah and what God wanted us to understand. That's what it means, Avram Avinu Kiem Kol Torah Kula, says Rav Yucham, that Avram observed the entire Torah even before it was given. How? Where did he learn Torah from? Amar Ablevi, Me'atzmo Lamad, the Medrash and Bereshus Rabbah tells us, he learned it from himself. He counted his organs, he counted his veins and arteries, and he understood 248, 365. Now I know how to live in this world. The human being is a living model, a living example of what the Torah, of what the world, how we're meant to live. So therefore, that's what it means. If we understand the secret, the foundation of our very creation, we can understand the Torah that governs us, the ideals, the values of why we are, of why we are here. I saw another beautiful idea from Rav Yaakov Aryeh of Radzman, who says the following, Chassid Shereb. Why was it? What does Rashi mean? Just like in the order of creation. First it was the animal world, then it concluded the pinnacle of creation was man, generic human man. So too now, when giving the Torah that govern, first we talked about the governs the animal world, and then we move over to the laws that govern the human world. Says the Rabbi Yaakov Ari Radzman, Madua Nivradam Bakhir Habriya Rakla Akhar. If man is the pinnacle, if man is the peak, if man is the closest to following in the footsteps, imitation of Hashem, shouldn't we have been first, the priority? Why are we last? Listen to what he answers. Bekavana, it was done intentionally. It was done strategically. Why? Because Hashem wanted man to come into a world in which he would look around and marvel. We would see the minutiae, the details, the animal world. We would see the thousands, the millions of species. We'd see them on the land and in the air and in the water. We would see and we would marvel. He designed it in this order and in this way so that we would look around at this world, we would see Hashem everywhere, and we would marvel. But I want to just lastly share with you the third pshat in this opening pasuk, which I think very much relates to today, Yom HaShoah, 
and one of the lessons we're meant to learn from it. And it comes from the Chassam Sofer of Moshe Sofer of Pressburg. Says the Chassam Sofer the following. Why specifically in the rules and the laws of Hilchos Tumah? We're talking about impurity, contamination. We're talking about death. We're talking about negative energy, force, or influence. It is specifically here in the context of the laws of Tumah that we're given this teaching. Just like the Yitzira of man was listed after animal, so to the Torah of man comes after animal. And to answer the question, the Chassam Sofer points out that the Medrash, the Gemara, Rashi, specifically says the word Yitziraso, as opposed to what other word, what other word might you have used? Says the Chassam Sofer, Briaso. If I were to describe Sheshis Yimei Bereshis, Briyas Ha'olam, we call the Briyas Ha'olam the creation of the world. So why are Chazan, why are our rabbis employing the word Yitzira rather than Briya, a much more natural fit? And listen to what he answers. He says, Yitzira, to fashion, to craft, to mold, Mora Al Kachomri Hagashmi Shala Adam. Yitzira is the word that we use to describe the physical construct, the physical molding or shaping of a material, uh, a material object. Bria mora adam. The word bria means to create something metaphysical. The word yitzira comes to create something physical. kadma lakol. So when it comes to fashioning, molding the physical creation of man, we were last. Why were we last, by the way? Because the order of creation follows the hierarchy. We advance in sophistication. We advance in purpose. We advance in the closeness to God. By the way, some point out that it's not man who is the pinnacle and peak of creation. If you follow the orders of the six days of creation, man is created the sixth day, but man is the penultimate creation. Who is the ultimate creation? What is the pinnacle of creation? Who is the most advanced and sophisticated part of creation? Woman is extracted from man. Woman is the, is the end, some like to say, but we see the creation of the androgynous figure together of man-woman in combination as the pinnacle or peak of creation. So says the Chassam Sofer, in the physical world, man is last, but in the spiritual world, man is first. And this corresponds with what we saw of Yerucham said, that God looked into a world, he looked into his Torah and he said, I've created this world to give man an opportunity to have a relationship with me. I created a world for the world of souls. Every soul that was destined to exist was created in the moment of creation and exists forever and is only housed in this physical world for a finite period of time, which in the context of eternity is actually rather short. So the physical manifestation of our being we are a soul that has a body. We're not a body that has a soul. The physical manifestation of our, of our being, the body, is the peak, comes after animal. But the spiritual part of who we are, our soul, came from the time of the very creation of the world, the moment, the conception of creation, we are in fact first. L'fichach, so now the Chassam Sofer says, why were these laws taught in the context of Tumah? What's the Torah? In other words, when we live only our physical being, we live in this material world, we're governed and guided by the pursuit of the material, then we've made contact with Tumah. That breeds impurity. The purest part of who we are, the best part of who we are, is our soul is our godliness, is our discipline, is our dignity. The lowest part of who we are is our base, animal, physical part of who we are. And one of the lessons of Yom HaShoah, one of the lessons of history of the Holocaust, is how Germany was supposed to be arguably the most sophisticated, the most cultured, the most advanced segment of society at its time. Who were the Nazi party? You know, they, they, they did a, a study of the members of the Nazi party and what degree of education they had. And disproportionately, their degrees were advanced, graduate degrees, PhDs. These were not the dregs of society, the mobsters, the lowly of society who rose to be able to invent a final solution 
who systematically put together an attempt of genocide to exterminate an entire innocent people. These were supposedly the educated, the cultured, the advanced. But you see that if there's no soul, if there's no God, if there's no connection to that which is absolute objective morality, guiding us to a world of light and goodness and truth, you see what can happen even to a physical being who supposedly are more sophisticated and advanced, who represent progress and evolution over the animal world, are in fact lower and less than the animal world. What the Nazis did, what they accomplished, was worse than what animals would do, how animals would behave. We're charged with repairing this world and transforming it to a place of godliness, to see through the filter of our soul, not through the externality, the superficial of the material or the body. And the Nazis represented what Yom HaShoah marks is the worst of humanity when humanity actually forfeit their soul and instead are driven like animals. Even one can be intellectually advanced and sophisticated and yet when one acts like an animal forfeiting their soul, they have in fact forfeited the entire purpose of creation of why we are here. Isha ki sazria v'yaldar zachar. Amar av simlai, kishem sh'yitziraso achar kol our Torah, what should charge us, inspire us, govern us, what should inform us and what should push us each and every day is to be better than an animal. Don't give in to that animal impulse, don't give in to the animal instinct, don't give in to the animal behavior, which of course is the connection to what's about to come after. Because the laws of Tsaras that now take up the bulk of both of our Parshios, Tazria and Mitzorah, also reflect what happens when man gives in to that base instinct to gossip about another, to be driven by ego. Ego stands for edging God out. When you push God out, when you're driven by your ego, in this world there's not enough room for both us and God. So either we're driven by the directives, by the image, by the vision that Hashem wants us to live our own lives and how we're meant to repair His world, or we're driven by our ego. We've edged God out and instead we gossip. We're driven by our arrogance, by our envy. We're driven by our desire, temptation, lust, and all of that yields a life of tsaras, which we'll talk about momentarily. Why is tsaras the antidote? In what way does that? In what way does that help us heal or rehabilitate us from that experience? But the message I want to begin with and share with you, and I think permeates not only our parshios but what today is about, is to remind us what can happen when we do not promote and we don't nourish our soul, our godly instinct but instead we allow our animal drive. So it can cause gossip, it can destroy relationships, friendships, it could hurt parnasa shiduchim, it could create a world of tsara'as, and even much more, it can devastate, where you could have the rise of a, of a power, a Nazi party who was democratically elected by a people, where people can forfeit their godliness and their humanity to act literally like a group of, like a group of animals, is what can happen. Our Torah, who we are, who we're meant to be, how we're meant to live our lives, has to be transcend, be greater, has to be further progressed than the animal world. In this context, the Torah tells us something very interesting. Parakid Beis, Pasuk Vav. Torah says, on the completion of the days of her purity, a woman who's given birth for a son, for a daughter, she brings a sheep in the first year, and she brings as well as a korban ben yona otor, a young dove or a turtle dove, and she brings them a pesach o'moed. She brings them to the opening of the o'moed, where the uh, where the kohen is, where the kohen is uh, waiting. It's a very interesting law. The woman who's given birth brings karbanos. One of the karbanos she brings is actually a, a sin offering. The Ramban quotes from Chazal because the woman on the labor bed who is enduring tremendous pain long before she was able to receive a uh, epidural. Today's woman, you know, they joke in Boca Raton, natural childbirth. You know what the definition of natural childbirth in Boca Raton is? Giving birth without your makeup on. That's natural childbirth. I joke, I won't say who because I have to live with them in quarantine now, but some people ask for the epidural when they get the second line back on the pregnancy test, that's when they're ready for the epidural. But in antiquity, before the epidural, women endured terrible pain from childbirth. That was the consequence of Chava's behavior. Each of us suffer from uh, that, uh, that poor judgment, Adam, Chava, and the snake. 
And, um, and the Ramban quotes from Chazal, so a woman on the labor bed would be in agony, screaming in pain, and no matter how much Lamaz, and no matter how much her husband says, breathe deep, relax, it's okay, she is busy cursing him out and saying, I am never doing this again. I am never having another child. It will never happen again. And of course, the moment she holds that child in her arms, and gets the joy and nachas, please God, she, uh, she regrets that pledge, and therefore the karban, the sacrifice, is commensurate with it. But among the sacrifices, she's told to bring a ben yonah or a tor. She brings either a, uh, a dove or a turtle dove, a young dove or a turtle dove. Very fascinating, this yonah. This dove that she's bringing, in fact, is the very metaphor for the Jewish people and for our relationship. We just read it a week ago. Sadly, we read it to ourselves, not together in shul. Please God, we will again in the future. But we read Shir Hashirim. Shir Hashirim is, uh, is uh, the custom of many is to read it on Pesach, whether to ourselves or out loud. And in there we have a beautiful, beautiful Pasuk that uh, my dear friend Simcha Leiner turned in, made famous. It's a famous song that's also a Pasuk. Uh, a great song. Shirim we sing Shlomelch describes Hashem calling out to us. And he says, Open up your heart to me. God's words of affection when he connects with us. Open up your heart to me, says the Ribbon Shalom. And how does he call us? Achosi, my sister. Rayasi, my love. Yonasi, my dove. Tamasi, my perfection. Now I understand why God says, open your heart to me. Right, the whole story of Shir Hashirim are these two in love, the husband and the wife, Hashem and us, the Dod and the Raya, and they can't connect. Their timing is off. One makes the gesture, one takes the initiative, the other's unavailable, and it's this effort. They're not in sync until they finally connect. And one of the messages of Shir Hashirim is that our relationship with Hashem is complicated. And I'll just add here with Yom HaShoah as well, that when we consider the systematic extermination of, of six million, of six million. Dr. David Bernstein, who offered a talk to our shul just before mine, and he's speaking again later, Dean of Pardes, an expert in the Holocaust, shared the uh, statistics from the demographers. Do you know that every other people who lost, in some cases like the Russians, multiples of what the Jewish people lost in the Holocaust has not only recovered those numbers, but surpassed them? The Jewish people are the exception. 75 years later, and we've not yet gotten back to the same population that we were before the Holocaust. That is the almost unprecedented impact of that devastation. And it can't help but leave one with theological dilemmas, with the question of why bad things happen to good people, of where is God, theodicy, how could it have happened? So we need to know from Shir Shirim and from our Parshia, and in general, that there are questions that are better than the answers, that we not only don't we know, we can't know. To know we would be God. And somehow we have to find the strength to put one foot in front of the other, like Aaron in last week's parsha, Vayidom Aaron, the the Kleisenberger Rebbe, the ability with silence to put one foot in front of another. Last night, and you can watch it on YouTube, I can't encourage you strongly enough, I interviewed Dr. Henry and Mrs. Rosie Baum. They both were sent on the kinder transport. They met in an orphanage and married 71 years ago, celebrated their 71st anniversary. The parents had the courage to love them more than themselves and therefore save them by setting them on their way. And Rosie's father was the artist and designer of the hidden shul of Theresienstadt. Incredible. But we, I asked them at the end of the interview last night, and again, I encourage you to watch it. It's on the, uh, my YouTube channel, um, how they maintain their faith. And they said, you know, they, they quoted from the uh, Panovich Rav, who said, some people don't have the answers, I choose not to have the questions. They said, we look at our lives, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchild, and we look at the bracha, not what was lost, and by focusing on the good, we put one foot in front of the other, we choose not to have the question. From them, we draw quite, we draw chizik, strength, because, you know, it's not lip service. What they endured and what they lost, and yet they have that ability, like so many of our survivors who are pillars of our faith, we hold on to them and they serve as the source of, of our strength. But of course it's understandable to be plagued by questions, to be plagued by questions. Shir Hashirim is the story that not always are we on a high with Hashem. Our relationship fluctuates, there are ups and downs, there are moments we feel connected and close, and there are days that Yom HaShoah we recoil with a sense of questions where we are overwhelmed with disbelief or not understanding. But in this context, Hashem says, open your heart. And I understand all the other metaphors. My, I understand my sister, my love, 
my perfection. What is Yonasi? Why does Hashem call us my dove? My dove. Why specifically of all the animals? Dog is man's best friend. Why the dove? I've never seen someone cuddle with a dove. I've never seen someone take the dove for a walk. I've never seen someone grieve tremendously at the loss of their dove. Dove is not man's best friend. Why does Hashem employ the dove? Pischili, open your heart to me like a dove. What is it about the dove? So the Gemara Nehruvin Adaf Kuf on the base tells us Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan said if the Torah had not been given to us, we nevertheless, even without the Torah, could have learned some of the principles and the values with which we live our life. We could have lived modesty from the cat, and we would have learned honesty from an ant, and we would have learned arayos monogamy from the dove, and we would have learned good manners from the rooster. Animal lovers love this Gemara. Nehruvin Adaf Kuf. You can look at the animal kingdom, there's great work ethic, there's great loyalty, there are good manners, there's modesty. From different animals we can derive different models of how we ourselves, also members of the animal kingdom, can live our lives. So what do we learn from the dove? Says that Gemara, we learn monogamy from the dove. Monogamy from the dove? What does that mean? So the Medrash and Shir Shirem Rabbah, 115.2, says that the Yonah, the dove, is innocent, graceful, distinguished, and most of all, the Yonah is... The dove is faithful and loyal. These are the character traits that we're aspiring to, and these are the character traits against which we are measured. Yonasi samasi. Hashem says, open your heart like my innocent, pure dove. Open your heart, be loyal, and be faithful. And we see this exactly in this Pasuk, which is why I'm bringing it up now. After childbirth, a woman's obligated to bring these sacrifices, as we said, kosher birds, only the ben Yonah, the young dove, and the Torah, the turtle dove, were brought as karbonos. And whenever the Torah gives us the option of bringing either of these species, it always mentions the Torah, the turtle dove, before the ben Yonah, the young dove. Our Pasha is the one exception. In our parsha, the one exception, we have the Ben Yonah and then the Torah, even though normally it's the Torah of the Ben Yonah. So if you have your Mikros Gedolos, my Talmidim, our students know, I always encourage you to have your Mikros Gedolos and follow inside. Then you know that uh, the Balaturim, look at the Balaturim, writes the Balaturim on our Pasuk, Rav Yaakov ben Asher, the son of the Rosh, whenever the Torah talks about these two species, it always puts the Torah, the Torah dove before the dove, except for here, why? Says the Balaturim, normally when it comes to most sacrifices, the birds are brought in pairs, so it doesn't matter which species you choose from, the birds are brought in pairs. But when it comes to this particular korban, only one bird was used. The tor, the turtle dove, is unique among the birds. They are instinctively and naturally monogamous and loyal for life. If its partner dies or disappears, they won't mate with another for the rest of their lives. So says the Balaturim, when you're taking only one bird, better to take from the Ben Yonah. You know why? Because the Ben Yonah is going to find someone else and the Torah is not. We see from their loyalty, their monogamy, their faithfulness. And from here, of Simcha Zissel Broid, the great Baal Musa, the altar of Kelm says, the quality of the dove that we're meant to emulate. When Hashem says, open your heart, my sister, my love, my perfection, my Yonah, what is God saying? Open your heart and be as loyal to me as the turtle dove. To emphasize that what he wants from us is loyalty. Don't be duplicitous. Don't say one thing and act another. Be faithful and be loyal. And I would argue to you, this is another one of our lessons. A lesson here on Yom HaShoah and a lesson for the rest of this Parsha having to do with the notion of gossip and the results are ra'as. There are people who say one thing and they stab others behind their back. We are meant to be loyal. Loyal to humanity and loyal to faith to Hashem and loyal to one another and loyal to our family, to what I believe is the core of what it means to be family, to be loyal, to defend, to have their back, to stand up. I always tell my children, when you fight at home, it's unacceptable, it's intolerable, but it's forgivable. But you know, when you're in school and someone's picking on your sibling and you join the bullies, that is unforgivable because at the core of family is to be loyal to one another, is loyalty to be there, to stand up, to give the benefit of the doubt, to have their back. 
It's family, it's friendship, it's what it means to be our people, it's what it means to be humanity, it's what it means to be in our relationship with Hashem, and it's one of the lessons we learn, it's the lesson we learn from the Ben Yonah. I wanted to just pause for a moment within the parsha. we're going to come back, we have a lot more to talk about, we're just getting started, but I wanted to just share with you for a moment on this opening section, because all the laws, the halachas about childbirth, and there are so many halachas about childbirth, I'll give you an example. Are you allowed to... Are you allowed to, um, what do you call it, when you start labor? And none of you can answer me because you're all muted right now. Are you allowed to schedule labor? Are you allowed to, you would think I would know because most of my children were born this way. I'm forgetting. But are you allowed to schedule and start labor? So that's a halacha question. If, of course, medically it's mandated, the doctor tells you there's a reason the fluid is low, or the baby's in distress, or there's a reason, induced labor. Thank you, Joyce, and thank God for the chat. Are you allowed to induce labor? So, if it's medically mandated, of course, but let's say you want to for convenience. Oh, you'd love your child to be born on your great uncle's birthday, or the doctor's going out of town and you want that doctor to do it. And there's no medical reason whatsoever. Can you induce labor? It's a halacha question. Why is it a halacha question? Because, number one, number one, um, it's a halacha question because you put someone in a life-threatening situation when you go into labor. Labor can be life-threatening. So can you do so electively? When, of course, it's to give birth to the child, of course, but to do so electively, is that permissible? Number two, believe it or not, one of the great poskim discusses the question of bitl Torah. You see, Chazal learned from our parsha. What is this baby doing in utero? In the gestational period, the baby's learning with the malach. Of course, we're tapped on the, on the lip and caused to forget what we've learned. And the question is why? Why bother teaching us to begin with? And the Rav points out, it's what gives every Jew a pintle yid. A Jew comes back to Torah when you light that spark within the Jew, no matter how unaffiliated, no matter how distanced, no matter how far they've strayed, something comes alive in them. Why? Because ultimately, spirituality, godliness, Torah is familiar to us. Why is it familiar? Because we learned it in the womb. It's all learned from here. So one of the great postcom says, if you induce labor, it's bitl Torah. You're denying that child the opportunity to learn with the greatest Rebbe and the greatest Chavrusa ever, the angel in the womb. Don't delay it unnecessarily. So we learn all these halachas and so many more about a bris mila and scheduling a bris, about childbirth and inducing childbirth. We learn all these laws about IVF, of what's permissible with the... Uh, reproduction technology today. So this is the area of halacha, and I wanted to draw you extraordinarily on this Yom HaShoah for just a few moments, we'll come back to the parsha, to halacha questions which are almost beyond our comprehension, that we can't even believe or imagine asking. What am I talking about? I alluded to last night in the conversation with the Baums, but today is really Yom HaShoah the Hagvura. It's a big question, and it was very controversial when Yom HaShoah was first set on our calendar. Not everybody agreed to its establishment. There are religious personalities, the Briskarov and his nephew, Rabbi Soloveitchik at YU, the, known affectionately to us as the Rav, objected to Yom HaShoah. They felt that all of Jewish tragedy and suffering is already encompassed and included in, we have a day set aside called Tisha B'av. They protested Yom HaShoah. Yom HaShoah falls in Nisan. It's still Nisan, the happy month in which we're not saying Tachan, and it's so incongruous that we are omitting Tachan on the one hand, and yet we are grieving and mourning Yom HaShoah on the other. There were secular objections, and I have a whole talk I gave on the history of Yom HaShoah. You can listen to it on my website or Yu Torah. It is a fascinating history to Yom HaShoah. But ultimately, Yom HaShoah was chosen, and the date that was chosen was connected to the uprising of the Warsaw Ghetto, and therefore it's called Yom HaShoah, not only the day of the destruction, but Yom HaShoah vehagvura. Gvura means might, and reflects the Jewish people's strength in that there was this organized rebellion in the Warsaw Ghetto. And often there's an emphasis of the physical resistance and physical rebellion during the Holocaust. But there was another, and it's important to focus, and there were incredible profiles of courage, heroes who led such resistance in Sobibor, in Warsaw, and elsewhere. But there's another form of resistance that cannot be neglected or overlooked, and it's what's called spiritual resistance. When Jews didn't lose their faith, when Jews didn't forfeit their humanity, when Jews didn't stop being loyal to one another, even in those darkest times, that is an expression of a spiritual resistance. When Jews maintained a, a ambition and aspiration to live a halachic life, even in those circumstances, it is a spiritual resistance. It is to look at the Nazis, the SS, Hitler, Yamach, Shemam, Vizichram, and say, you can deny me food and deny me freedom. You can try to bake, break my back. You can torture me and you can kill my family, but you will not take away my emunah bitachon. You will not take away my faith and fidelity to Torah. 
And nowhere do you see this more, I think, in an organized way than an extraordinary set of tshuvas. I have here a couple volumes. It's, it's at least five volumes I have at home called Shailas Tshuvas Mimam Makim. Rav Ephraim Oshri Zatzal was a rov of the Kovna Ghetto and later concentration camp. And in the Kovna Ghetto, it was a great Talmud Chacham and Rav, and people turned to him with their halachic questions. Halachic questions. Did you hear what I just said? In the Kovna Ghetto and in death camps, People turn to him with halachic questions. Now that to me in itself is unbelievable. Literally unbelievable. There are people right now who say, you know, I had to make Pesach for the first time. Where is God? Do you know that I've, I've had to be limited and quarantined to my air-conditioned, comfortable home? Where is God? And I'm not suggesting or minimizing the pain, the suffering for people who have no income right now, who are afraid how they're going to pay their bills. It is a very difficult time. For people struggling with loneliness and depression, it is a very difficult time. For people who have loved ones who've been sick, who have lost loved ones, I have my cousin, it is an extraordinarily difficult time. I am not minimizing it at all. All I'm saying is, Look at the legal loopholes and the leniencies and the kulas and look how even then, not everybody, maybe not even most, but there were some who expressed a spiritual resistance, who chose to be a soul even when they were denied their ability to be a functioning body. They continued to ask those questions. And five volumes of these questions. And when I like to study the Chuvas Mimamakim of Oshri, an amazing, amazing Gon, who, by the way, scribbled the notes of the questions he was asked. You talk about an additional layer of the spiritual resistance, is that he wrote down the questions and his answers without the, without the convenience of a library or Barilan or Otsar Achachma, brilliant mind, and he hid them and buried them under the ghetto, and later came back in 1959, published them, expanded upon them in the Chuvas Mimamakim. There's actually a one-volume English responsive from the Holocaust, which is an English translation, really a summary, it's not a direct translation of many of these tshuvas. If we had time, I would learn some of the tshuvas with you in the Hebrew. We don't have time. I want to just read to you a few of the questions in the English. And I chose specifically questions connected to the beginning of our parsha, having to do with the area of pregnancy, gestation, of bris, and so on. He has a question here, and again, I was going to read to you. We don't have the time to read to you from the Hebrew. I'll just read to you here from the English. A covenant family had assimilated among the non-Jews. There was nothing in their daily behavior that distinguished them from surrounding Lithuanian Gentiles. They lived a life separate from the Jewish community. They did not keep the covenant of our forefather Avram and never circumcised their son. 1941, when the cruel enemy decreed that all surviving Jews must leave the city of Kovna and be sealed within the ghetto, set up in the town of Slabodka, this family was taken along with the rest of the Jews like sheep to the slaughter. All their assimilation turned out to no avail. The man was cruelly murdered by the Germans and his wife and children were compelled to suffer exactly what all the other Jews were suffering inside the ghetto walls. The member of the family naturally asked themselves, why must we suffer? They saw themselves as Gentiles and they could not perceive that the Germans regarded all Jews equally as vermin to be annihilated. Ultimately, however, their uncircumcised son developed a powerful sense of kingship and love for his unfortunate brethren. He sought a way of rejoining his people. But there was no God-fearing Moel in the ghetto who would circumcise this 27-year-old man. A Jewish surgeon, a man who desecrated Chavez publicly, was willing to perform the circumcision, so I was asked if Halacha allowed the doctor to circumcise this young man. In the ghetto, this 27-year-old man, who was raised as a non-Jew, because his assimilated parents thought, if only we assimilate, they'll love us, they'll accept us, we'll be safe. And yet, then, as now, the world cruelly reminds us that no matter how badly you try to fit in, you're different, you're apart, you're separate, we'll get to that, badad yeshev, you are a lonely, isolated people, it's who you're meant to be. And now at 27 years old, when he realizes that his destiny is inextricably intertwined with the rest of his people, he wants a bris. But there is no, there's no Shomer Shabbos Moel in the Kovna ghetto, only this irreligious surgeon. Is it proper, is it okay to have a bris, the beginning of our parsha? through a non-religious surgeon. This was the question that he asked in the Kovna ghetto. He was asked on August 28, 1942, a woman who had become pregnant in the ghetto, a woman who became pregnant in the ghetto was afraid. The Germans had decreed that any pregnant woman would be murdered. So she wanted to know, was it permissible to get an abortion? The only way to save her life was at the expense of the life of this unborn child. Again, I'm not going through the answers, the tshuvas, and, the, and the, the breath, the depth, the sources he quotes. I'm sharing the questions that give us a sense of not only in practice what, women, women, what, what people were thinking and worried, but some of the spiritual resistance and heroism. I've shared many times the question of the, of the 11-year-old boy who says to Rav Oshri in the ghetto, he says, you know, 
you and I both know I'll never make it to my bar mitzvah. I'm not going to make it to my bar mitzvah. But I cannot go to my death without knowing what it's like to wear tefillin. So even though I'm not the age yet of bar mitzvah, can I start wearing tefillin if I have the right mindset and if I protect myself, I behave in the proper way? Can I wear tefillin even though I'm not yet 13? Can you imagine that's what's on his mind? That's his question in that time? Many of our young children would say, tefillin, God? When people around me are being murdered, corpses lie in the street. People are willing to give up on God when their Wi-Fi doesn't work in our day and age, tragically. We can draw strength when we learn just some of these questions. The child of a Jewish woman and a non-Jewish man. After liberation from the Germans, they supported one another. He has a long question that tells this, this unbelievable story of a Jewish woman who had a baby with a non-Jewish man during the war. It was the only way she could survive. And now what was the status of this child? Does he need a conversion with a non-Jewish, with a non-Jewish father? Some of the other extraordinary questions that, that came up. First of all, it, it, it struck me. I saw this question he has. Echad, sorry, not that one. Echad shehitzil yelad meir shoyim. Somebody saved a child from the Nazis, and the two of them survived together. And he had no biological children of his own. He adopted this child that he had saved, and he wanted the child when he got called to the Torah in the child's ksuba that the child would consider him the father halachically. He would be called to the Torah, so-and-so, the son of, the one who saved him and the one who adopted him, rather than the son's own biological father. And when the war was over, this survivor, with the child survivor whom he had saved, the survivor asked Ravoshi, can he be called to the Torah with my name rather than his father's name? And Ravoshi goes through a heart-wrenching tshuva, that would that dishonor his biological father, who was a martyr, who was among the Kenoshim? His father was a Kohen, and his father was murdered by the Nazis, and would it dishonor him? Listen to this tension, this young child. Should he be called by his biological father who lost his life, Al-Kiddush Hashem, or called by his adopted father who saved him life and gave him life? By the father who first gave him life in this world, or by the father who saved his life in this world? What an incredible question that he is, that he is asked. This struck me, I saw this question, then we'll get back to the parsha. It struck me because of the extraordinary time in which we're living, where, I'm not getting into it right now, but there are people when it was permissible, maybe it's permissible again in Israel, to make porch minyanim, mirpeses minyanim, backyard minyanim, if it's permissible, when it's permissible, even if it's permissible, is it smart? Not getting into any of that right now. But this question was asked to Rav Osher in a very different context. In the Kovna ghetto, there were Jews who were hiding, there were Jews who were in hiding spaces, so they couldn't see each other. They could only hear each other. Can you combine and create a minion when you can only hear each other, but you can't see each other? Does that constitute tefillah b'tzibor? What an incredible question he was asked. And think about the contrast to our time. We're choosing to put ourselves in such circumstances, having the privilege of being able to save ourselves, and it's the virus hunting us, as opposed to then when that question was asked in the context of others who were trying to destroy and kill them. Let's get back to the parsha, and we're going to get back to Yom HaShoah as well, combining the two with the incredible Eish Kodesh, the great Piazetz Nareb. Perak Yudbez, Perak Yudgimel rather, Pasuk, Pasuk Bez. We've moved on now. What is the um, majority of... Tazria and Mitzora are the laws of Tsaras, the spiritual leprosy. It's not a physical dermatological disease. It is a spiritual manifestation of a spiritual ill uh, called Tsaras. Tsaras is the result of being motzi, shame, ra. You use that gift of speech to speak ill of others, to gossip of others, to destroy other lives. You have forfeited humanity. Saras, you are a motzi shemra, and this is introduced by Daber Shama Moshe Bilaron Naimorfi of the Article Stone Chumash, page 608. God spoke to Moshe and Aaron and he said, Adam, kiyye boor besaro, seisa sapachos of baheres. If a person has on their flesh all of these uh, blemishes, any of these blemishes, vaya boor besaro, leneget saras, that is a manifestation of the spiritual illness called saras. And vahuva ela Aaron akoin. Vahuva means they are brought to Aaron the Kohen, or to one of his children. It's very interesting to note, that you're brought, you're brought. What does it suggest? If you have to be brought close, what does it suggest about where you are? You're far away. If you're capable of gossiping about other people, you're far away from Hashem. You can't shuckle and shul, and you can't hold to the greatest hashgachas, and you can't hold yourself to be such a from heilaga erlecha yid, 
And in your interpersonal relationships, you gossip and you're envious and you're cruel and you, you, you uh, dismiss and marginalize and judge others. If you're close with God, it means to be close with His children. If you're not close with His children, don't claim to be close with Him. You have to be brought close to God. Why? Because if you have tzara'as, you were far away from Him, you need to be brought close. Why does it say Adam? We have in the Torah the use often of other words, not Adam. We often see the description as Ish or Gever. Why? Adam. Adam ki yebor besaro. Adam. Parenthetically, the Gemara says that Yisrael are Nikra Adam. Umas Olam are not called Adam. Adam is a name, a label specifically for the Jewish people. Why is that? It's not derogatory. It's not degrading. It's something which actually is a charge to us. Adam comes from the word Adama. It means that from the moment we're born, we've not arrived, we're not complete. We are an Adam from an Adama. We are meant to be growing, aspiring. We're meant to be reaching. We're meant to be reaching. I saw recently, I don't remember where, Adam, Aleph, Dam. The Aleph, God, is Dam in our blood. There's a Tselem Elohim. To be an Adam, in Adama, to be growing. How can we be growing? Because Adam, Aleph, Dam, the Aleph, the Aleph, the HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Rebunashul Olam, Dam, he's in our blood. Is who, he is who we are. He is part of our makeup, we are meant to be that Selim Elohim. But I'll share with you a different interpretation of Tzir Miliska. He says the following fascinating pshat. He says the word Ish and the word Gever can be in the plural. Anashim Gvarim. What's the plural of Adam? What's the plural of Adam? There is no plural of Adam. And that's why here it says, Adam ki or besaro. There is no plural of Adam. You see, we are meant to live as one, to be unified, to be united. We're meant to cooperate, we're meant to be loyal, we're meant to be faithful, we're meant to be like the dove in our interpersonal relationships. When you gossip, when you slander, when you marginalize, when you judge, when you exclude, then you're not functioning with the rabbim. You're not functioning with the tzibur. You have excluded yourself or you've made someone else feel excluded. That is unforgivable, it's intolerable, and it results in saras. Adam cannot be in the Lashon Rabbim. Ish can be Anashim, Gever can be Gvarim. There is no Bitoi Barabim. There is no formulation of Adam in the plural, because that is the message of the, of the, uh, of the Mitzorah. I saw another fascinating suggestion, the Balei Musr say, why Lama Nismacha? Why do we have Parshas Nagaim? Tazriya Mitzorah comes after Shmini. Shmini is the laws of Kashus. Tazriya Mitzorah are the laws of Tsaras. Why are they connected? Why are they juxtaposed one after the other? And it's such a beautiful and important idea. It's very succinctly put. Because a Jew has to be just as concerned of what comes out of our mouth as we are about what goes in our mouth. We're very strict. I have 17 apps and four phone number, emergency phone numbers to check Hachshirim. Even in Trader Joe's, I can figure out what's kosher and what's not kosher. Even with these Hachshirim no one's ever seen before. Everyone is scrupulous, vigilant, careful. Pesach, the Shailas that came in. Kashros, the Shailas that come in. We're so careful, hopefully, and vigilant, hopefully, about what goes in our mouth. But these two are juxtaposed, Shmini and then Tazriya Mitzorah, because a Jew, what it means to be a Jew, is to be as careful of what comes out of our mouth and as careful as what goes into our mouth. We have to be careful. Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Memhe, skipping right along. And there's so much to talk about here in terms of in terms of these, uh, the laws, we learn from each of these sections and each of these references, we learn extraordinary laws. The language is seis, beheras, apachas, and, and so on, and so on. Um, but skipping ahead because I want to be able to, to, uh, to get to a couple more ideas. Perak yud gimel pasuk mem hey. What is the laws? What's the rehabilitation process for the, for the Mitzorah? The person with Tsaras, his garment has to be torn and the hair of his head has to grow and he cloaks himself up to his lips. He is to call out, Tamei, Tamei. He is to call out, Tamei, Tamei. Why does he call out, Tamei, Tamei? Where does this come from? Why is he calling out Tamei Tamei? So Rashi says, you know why he's calling out Tamei Tamei? Zagd Rashi mashmiya shu Tamei Part of his rehabilitation process is the shame of calling out, don't come near me. I'm highly contagious. Don't come near me. It can impact you. I sort of Zilberstein in the tshuvas that he put out already for coronavirus. I was learning it over Pesach. He talks in there that one of the lessons, this virus 
is extraordinarily contagious. That's why the flu may have made more, the flu may be more dangerous or terminal, but COVID-19 is even more contagious. And suggest Rav Zilberstein, one of the lessons that we learn is just as something can be so contagious and it can impact the entire globe and the whole world for the bad, so too can our behavior be contagious for the good. You know, not only is there physical contagion in the form of a virus, but there's also spiritual contagion. When we spread gossip, when we create a negative culture, when we depict images and ideals and values that are, that are antithetical to what the Torah wants from us, there's, there's, spirit, there's a physical can go viral and spiritually negative can go viral, or we can create positive energy and light. We can make things go viral and contagious in a most positive sense. So says Rashi, part of the rehabilitation process for this egomaniac who's edged God out is Tomei Tomei, they have to declare, I'm Tomei, stay away. You don't want to come near me. I'm highly contagious. They have to be quarantined. That was a word that until six weeks ago, we only used when we studied Parshas Tazriya Mitzorah. Who used the word quarantined until recently? And yet, Pashtus Tazriya Matsora was that the individual who had this spiritual malady had to be quarantined. They had to be isolated, and they declared Tame Tame Yikra. They declared Tame Tame in order to warn people to stay away. The Gemara has another layer of interpretation. The Gemara Moid Kutten Dafhei Ahmed Aleph, a very important layer for us. You know why he declared Tame Tame? because other people this way were able to daven for him. I'm not judging different people heal differently. Some people are diagnosed with an illness and they keep it absolutely as private and confidential as they can. And they go through it on their own with tremendous bravery and strength and to a degree, a certain level of heroism. And there's no judgment of them. But if somebody hesitates and wonders, is it okay to let people know the Gemara derives from our Pasuk, not only is it okay, it's a good thing to do. Because by letting everyone know your name, God forbid one's name, can be added to Tehillim's lists. People can daven and do meritorious acts in their benefit and for their name and for their good. And therefore the Gemara learns from here, Tame Tame Yikra, let people know when you're going through something difficult, not as a form of selfishness or to feed your ego, let people know because you are asking them to daven on your behalf. But the Shlach HaKadosh, the Shnei Luchos Abris, Rabbi Shaya Horowitz had another interpretation of Tamei Tamei Yikra. And he said the following. He said the following, based on the Gemara and Kedushin. The Gemara and Kedushin and Dafayin Amar Aleph tells us, Kol HaPosel B'Mumo Posel. Anybody who looks at someone else and invalidates them, anyone who criticizes or judges someone else, usually is simply criticizing the quality that they dislike within themselves. Kola posel, what you invalidate in someone else, bimumo posel, you're really only revealing about what you have within your own life. The truth is that we are all mirrors to one another. We, everyone else is a mirror to ourselves. And what I don't like, what I can't stand in you, is really a reflection of what I'm struggling with myself, maybe even what I can't stand within myself. Kolaposel b'mumaposel. So they're tamay, tamay yikra. If you declare someone else's tamay, really your tamay. Posel, kolaposel b'mumaposel. And the Shlach proves this from the Rambam. The Rambam tells us a fascinating halacha. The Ramam says that anyone who tries to get married, when they come and say we're Jewish, we don't have to investigate. We can trust them, there's a chazaka, we can believe them that in fact they're Jewish. What's the exception, the Ramam says? If you see family who quarrels, who bickers, who fights, if you see a person who generally doesn't get along, who's always hypercritical of others, then you have to worry that what they're passing in others, they're really revealing and reflecting in themselves. And that, to a degree, might even be so strong that it negates their cheskas kashrus, it undermines the default that they, in fact, are considered to be kosher. And therefore, he says, not necessarily. So tami tami yikra What we dislike in others really often reflects what we dislike within ourselves. Two more very quick important important ideas I want to share. Number one, badad yeshev. What is the punishment? The real tater process. So the very next passage, passing Menvav tells us badad yeshev michutz lamachane moshevo. The person who spoke ill of another has to sit outside. Where is their dwelling place? Michutz lamachane, alone, isolated, outside. Why is that their rehabilitative process? Rav Zalman Tzeratzkin, who was a Rav in Poland before the war and Israel after the war, has a Sefer Aznayim Latora. And I want to thank my friend Rav Chaim Freer who shared this uh, source with me. He writes in a Sefer, apparently it was edited out, somebody, I mentioned this 
um, in the recent uh, panel I did with Rabbi Lord Sachs, and somebody emailed me that the reference I'm about to tell you was edited out of the English translation of Aznaim Torah. So it's not in the English translation, but I promise you it is right here in the Hebrew, trans- uh, the Hebrew edition of the Aznaim Torah, Pashtas Tazria. Badad Yeshev. Why is it that the person who spoke ill of others has to sit alone? Why is it they're quarantined? Why are they isolated? And he says, you need to know, Nidmalo, because the person who can speak this way of another, Shekola Olam Kulo the Nivra Ebelishvilo, they think, you know, the whole world was created just for me. The person thinks everyone else is competing for what really belongs to me. It's mine. The world is here to serve me. He really wants everyone else to die from a magefa. This was written many, many years ago. The one who gossips is spreading a contagious virus, a magefa. And when they spread their contagious virus called gossip, they're trying to destroy the world because they believe the whole world is here only to serve them. And he says, really, they themselves should have died from a magefa. They spread this virus called gossip. They should be eliminated from this world. But Hashem has pity on them. And therefore, instead of actually eliminating them altogether, Hashem says, They should be isolated and alone. You gossiped and caused somebody to feel alone and isolated. You know how punishing that is? You know how punitive it is? You know how painful that is? You caused someone to be alone? You need to know what it's like to be alone. And therefore, the gossiper is quarantined. The gossiper is isolated. The gossiper maximizes social distancing, can't come near anyone else. And he writes, this is the part that's edited out. Hasevel shall habedidus. Do you know what it means to be sovel? The pain and the suffering of loneliness, of isolation, of quarantining. He says, if you want to read about it, Anu Motsiyim Besefer, we find it in the Sefer in the book called Robinson Caruso. There it tells the story of somebody who was saved from a boat. How hard they had to work to find food and what to drink. And after sitting for a long time, they began to forget how to speak. And they forgot how to operate. They lost their mind. Because that's the impact of loneliness. So Zaman Sarotskin, look him up. Not the personality that you'd necessarily think would include in the Sefer as Daim Torah, a reference to Robinson Caru, Robinson uh, Caron, uh, to, would, would quote this, uh, this story about what it means, the punishment of being alone. And why does he quote it? Because he's explaining the person who gossips has to know what it's like to be alone. Why am I sharing this? Because part of what the world, Yom HaShoah, what is anti-Semitism? You know, the Jewish people, it was prophesized already about us that we are Hainam, Levadad Yishkon, the same word, Badad, he has to live isolated, quarantined. Bil Russia said about us that we are Hainam Levadad Yishkon. We are destined, no matter how hard we try to fit in, no matter how hard we try to belong, no matter how hard we try to be participate as part of society, Am Levadad Yishkon. We are destined to be a people alone and isolated. And that's what anti-Semitism ultimately is in its core. It wants to see us as, it paints us as the other. And not suggesting we should embrace it because it is our destiny, but we should understand what we're up against. We should understand what we are fighting. Okay, the hour is late, but really I wanted to get to the most important. I had so many other ideas I wanted to talk to you about. But I wanted to get the most important, which is to close to you with the drusha of the Piazetzna Rebbe. The great Piazetzna Rebbe. The Piazetzna Rebbe, Rabbi Kalana is common Shapiro Piazetzna. Dr. David Bernstein just spoke about him for those who participated in the last Zoom this morning uh, when he took us on a walking tour of the Warsaw Ghetto. The Piazetzna Rebbe, uh, I could speak about him now for hours. In fact, I did. And online talked about his history and background and his tragic death, Hashem Yikom Damo. We don't have time right now. Piazetzna Rebbe was a Rebbe in Piazetzna, which was near Warsaw before the, before the war. He was a Hasidish Rebbe. He was innovative. He was amazing um, breakthrough in educational models and paradigms. His introduction to his work, Chovas HaTamidim, the uh, student's obligation, is a must-read for every parent and for every teacher in his way of thinking of how we need to train young minds today. He was an incredible spiritual person uh, who, who 
put Shalashidas on another level. He was very real, he was musical, he composed, he played music, and he tragically, tragically lost everyone. He himself was in the Warsaw Ghetto and was murdered by the Nazis. Hashem Yikom Damam, Hashem should avenge his soul. An amazing, extraordinary person, and much of the revival of what's called Neo Hasidus today, the Shul in Woodmere. My Rebbe, Moshe Weinberger's Shul, is named after Ish Kodesh, after the Piazet Nerebbe, because the name of the uh, sermons that he gave. Could you imagine again? We talked about a spiritual resistance of asking those kinds of questions, trying to keep halacha even in a ghetto, in a concentration camp. This is another expression of spiritual resistance. For a rabbi to get up and give sermons in the ghetto? For there to be an audience to hear those sermons, interested in hearing sermons, drushes in a ghetto? To hear about God? To hear about faith and optimism? To try to make sense of it there in that horrific place? It's mind-boggling. It's almost impossible for us to understand, and yet he did. So we have a collection of those sermons. They too were buried. In fact, in the there was recently a documentary that was put out, but the Oynig Shabbos, uh, the Oynig Shabbos, um, the, the extraordinary story of the, the documenting of the Warsaw Ghetto and the war that was buried underneath in three separate places, the Oynig Shabbos archives, two of the three were found. I think I didn't see it, but there was a, apparently an amazing documentary recently told of it. And in the Oynig Shabbos archives, um, Zingoblam, I think was his name, were included the writings of the Piazetz Nerebbe. So the Eish Kodesh are the drushes that he gave in the Warsaw Ghetto. An amazing book came out a couple years ago from uh, Professor Dr. Henry Abramson, uh, my friend, who wrote Torah from the Years of the Wrath, 1939 to 1943. The historical context of the Eish Kodesh. To learn the Eish Kodesh, the Piazetz Nerebbe's drushes in the Warsaw Ghetto is in itself extraordinary. What the great gift that Dr. Abramson provided for us is to say that the Eish Kodesh writes very cryptically. If you learn the whole Eish Kodesh, you'll see he never connects the drusha he's giving in the parsha. He doesn't actually connect it to the horrors they are enduring to what they're going through. He simply gives the drusha with allusions and hints to what he's getting at, but he doesn't draw, connect the dots and draw the line. The gift that Dr. Abramson gave us in this book is he connects the dots and he draws the line. He tells us, here is what was happening in the Warsaw Ghetto when the Piazetz Nerebbe gave that drusha, so you better understand it. And I want to close our time this morning, our Parsha class on Yom HaShoah, by sharing with you what the Piazetz Nerebbe said in the Warsaw Ghetto on Parsha's Tazria Metzorah. It was Nisan of the year 5700, 80 years ago. And here's what he said, April 1940. And I'm reading to you from Dr. Abramson's work, Torah from the Years of the Wrath. In April 1940, Warsaw Jews were distressed to witness the initial construction of walls in several parts of the city. Up until this point, the concentration of Jews in certain parts of Warsaw was affected by administrative degree, with few permanent physical structures demarcating the boundaries of the ghetto. Debates raged within the Nazi bureaucracy over the utility of a ghetto and the inconvenience it would pose on the non-Jewish population, disrupting transport and access to various institutions located in the area. So there was a debate not whether this was a human thing to do. There was no debate on the moral and ethics of how to treat the Jews, but the inconvenience to the non-Jewish population of what a ghetto would mean. Arguments over the specific boundaries of the Jewish district would continue for months, requiring periodic adjustments, but the ominous meaning of the barrier was not lost on the Jews. They were to be sealed in. Cherniakov, as head of the Judenrat, was charged with the implementation of the Nazi order. The Jews were to supply both the materials and the labor. The Rebbe's sermon of April 13, 1940, and you have to understand this is such a gift Dr. Abramson gave because I learned through the sermon, and he talks about Tsaras of a bias. What happens when the walls of a home become afflicted with the spiritual leprosy? How is it diagnosed? What does one need to do? There's beautiful ideas we shared in the past, the Tolna Rebbe. You take apart the walls, you discover what's really in the home, or not the things, but the people. There's very, very beautiful ideas. Why in the world was the Piazetz Rebbe talking about walls in April 1940 in the Warsaw Ghetto? But with this historical background, now we first begin to understand and appreciate, because they were building the very walls of the Warsaw Ghetto. It was on everyone's mind how they were further being constricted and closed in. So the Rebbe's drusha, April 13, 1940, addressed the concerns of the community, drawing contemporary relevance from ancient Torah, reading and presenting it in the oblique manner that would be understood on multiple levels by the audience. He began by citing Rashi's comment regarding the treatment of a physical structure plague placed under quarantine after it showed signs of the plague known as Tsaras. 
After seven days of quarantine, the home was to be destroyed, and according to the Medrash, the inhabitants of the home then discovered treasures previously hidden in the walls of the Amorites who lived there before the Jewish people conquest of Canaan. These are the words of the Rebbe. Let us understand, said the Piazetzna Rebbe, April 13, 1940, standing in the Warsaw Ghetto. Why is one required to seal the house for seven days at the outset and only afterwards remove the stones? Once the plague is visible, one knows the treasures that are to be found there. It's especially true according to the understanding of the Ramban, cited in the works of my Holy Father, that plagues on houses and clothing are supernatural occurrences and are only for the benefit of the Jewish people in order to reveal hidden treasures. Why then does the Torah command us to render the house impure at the onset? Why wait seven days? Why not do it at the beginning, asks the Piazetzna Rebbe. To restate the Rebbe's question, if Tzaras is to be understood as supernatural signals to the Jews that there are hidden treasures in the walls, why quarantine? Shouldn't the Jews simply destroy the walls once the first indications of Tzaras are evident? One can only imagine how his question must have electrified his Hasidim, seeking guidance on the meaning of the walls under construction in the ghetto. The Rebbe's reference to the Emirate treasure alluded to a, ben- a hidden benefit in walls, but at the same time his words contained a hint of rebellion. Was he advocating the construction of the walls be sabotaged? Here's what he wrote. This is what the, what, the, what the Rebbe said. This is what's in Eish Kodesh. In truth, the intent of the Torah and its commandments are beyond our grasp. We can, however, perceive illusions, for we know and believe that all of God does for us, even heaven forbid when God strikes us, is all for our benefit. Again, you're listening to these words from the comfort of your air-conditioned home or whatever technology you're listening. But the Rebbe was uttering these words in the war of Sargeta, April 1940. And he says... We know and believe that all that Hashem does for us, even God forbid when God strikes us, is for our benefit. At the present time we see, however, we are not solely smitten with physical afflictions, but also chas v'shalom with those that distance us from Hashem. There is neither primary Torah school nor yeshiva, neither study hall in which to praise a congregation nor mikvah. Consequently, a glimmer of doubt arises within us. Is it possible that even now Hashem's intent is for our benefit? If it is for our benefit, Hashem should have chastised us with those things which would have drawn us closer, not with ending Torah study and prayer and the fulfillment of the entire Torah. But for answering his own question, the Rebbe probed further by specifically referring to the present condition of Warsaw Jewry. The punishments of the spring of 1940 serve only to distance Jews from Hashem. How could the walls possibly hold good tidings for the Jews of Warsaw? What did they mean and how should Hasidim relate to their construction? The Rebbe related, returned to his question by digging deeper into the Talmudic teachings, which noted that only a member of, a, of, of the Kohanim had the authority to place the home under quarantine. A non-priest, even an expert, can only render an opinion. The Rebbe's concluding words contain several distinct messages. He validated the suffering of the Jews and its deleterious impact on their spiritual growth. He remained steadfast on his faith, and the developments were somehow beneficial in the larger plan of Hashem. And finally, like the expert who's not a member of the Kohanim, the Rebbe could only state it resembles a plague. He could not definitely pronounce that it was in fact a plague, thereby initiating the quarantine. By analogy, he could only speculate as to the meaning of the ghetto walls. It resembles a plague, but at the same time, he believed with perfect faith that there was an ultimate divine purpose, which would ultimately be revealed as a valuable treasure. His response to his chassidim, troubled by the meaning of the walls, validated their fears, but urged them to strengthen their faith in divine providence. Wow, what a message. In the Warsaw Ghetto, connecting our Parsha through illusion and hint only, that you know what, even if it feels we're being quarantined, and even if it feels, he tells the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto, Al-Achas V'Kama V'Kama, a million, billion times more for us, going through the time that we are going through. When we feel, what do you mean, Hashem? You want me to be closer? Let me come to Shul. Let me be in the base Medrash. Let me go to the, the mikvah easily. Let everything flow smoothly. Hashem, where are you? We need to know that just like then, there was the period of quarantine before one saw the blessing. There is a blessing, and it's part of a master plan, and one day it will come. The Piazetz Nerebbe was able to strengthen the Jews of Warsaw then, and through his words today, he strengthens us today in our time. May each of us have only good health, strength, and happiness. On this Yom HaShoah, we pledge to fight anti-Semitism, to, to show loyalty to one another and to Hashem, like the dove, and please God in that merit to be able to come together soon, speedily in our time. Thank you.